Father, thank you for this time. Open the eyes of our hearts at this time and let us receive from you as we hear from your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 8, beginning with the 27th verse of you from the mountain. Uh, this, of course, is the event of the transfiguration. And as you see this occurring, uh, this is a, an event that uh, many people have great questions about and a great wonderment. It is probably the clearest example we have of the divinity of Christ outside the resurrection. So Jesus has not, of course, died and been resurrected at this point. So this is the clearest example we have of his divinity. And uh, Jesus is going to enact this, at least in part, because he's uh, going to affirm his mission and quote his theology. And then I think there's also what we can glean from it today. So today we're going to look at the mission of Christ, the theology of Christ, and what can we glean from that today? How does that affect and impact us today as we have the vision that God has given us? Now, as we look at this incident, you know, he's on a mountaintop. And, you know, we all have this uh, natural desire to be on top of a mountain or be on top of a hill. You know, especially growing up in Louisiana and swampland, you know, I mean, and if I could just see a hill about 10 foot, I thought that was a big deal to just stand up on that. But we all have this natural affinity to to look over and to kind of have a majestic view. A lot of times, maybe when you've gone to Colorado or different places, maybe to go skiing or just to view mountains, um, haven't you ever thought this, God, I wish we could just have a place up here. I and mean, then you forget that like nine months out of the year, it's frozen uh, and snowing up there. But, uh, but it all seems so romantic and so idealistic at the time. Well, uh, you know, Peter, James, and John are going to have the experience and uh, wanting to be up there on the mountain, so to speak. Uh, but the truth of it is, is, Anytime you go on the mountain, there's also inevitably a time that you must come down. And we know that's true biblically and historically, but we know it's also true in our culture today. Uh, you think about it, the people that are on the top, if they're the athletes on the top, there's going to be a time where they're not going to be as well recognized. And, and what will they get? A lot of them is a concussion and, and the inability to walk and a lot of other things. But we idealize them at this point now. Even in the business world, it's interesting, you know, Forbes always comes out with this list of the 100 most powerful people in the world, and uh, it's really more of the most powerful people in the United States, but they said most 100 powerful people in the world. This year they came out with a list, the 100, uh, the 100 people who are the least powerful in the world, the list of the world's least powerful people. And the way they did it is they took how far somebody had fallen. So basically you had to have some kind of power at one time, but now you're at a place where you have little to no power, and so there's been a huge fall. So on that list of the hundred least powerful people, and actually there's no one in this room that's on the list, so you can celebrate that. Uh, Tony Hayward, the former CEO of BP, fourth largest company in the world. And we know because of the oil disaster, uh, he ends up losing his job and goes from being one of the most powerful individuals, and we're on Forbes' top 100 list, to being someone who's lost his job and has been disgraced. Jim Keyes, the former CEO of Blockbuster, used to be, you saw Blockbusters on every corner, now you can't find one in Flower Mountain or Highland Village. And you see how that business has fallen. Um, Mike Jones, the, uh, the current, matter of fact, the former and current owner of CEO of MySpace. Now, if you are 40 or above, how many of you know what MySpace is? Okay, better than the last crowd. Like, we had one person that knew what MySpace, MySpace was the original Facebook. Okay, 
They had the first 70, peop- 70 million people in the social network, but now it's in obscurity. I mean, how many of you, I'm not going to ask you to show your hands because you'd be embarrassed, but how many of you uh, operate on MySpace now? Not, hardly anybody, okay? It's, it was not, uh, there were a lot of fallacies, a lot of problems, uh, but the bottom line is they, he took one of the social medias that could have been the largest social media in history, and now it's in obscurity. Or how about one of our favorites? Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay? Uh, top of the movie industry, top of the political industry, governor of California. Uh, now he is considered one of the least powerful people in the world. You know, that happens, and it's going to happen. And the question becomes not if we're going to gain or lose our power. The real question in life, what is our mission? Jesus makes it very clear in the passage that we're going to read what his mission is. And then we've got to determine what our mission is, and it's spelled out in Scripture. But Jesus is going to show uh, His mission, and He's going to redefine the mission of what the Messiah actually is. Many people had this anticipation, this understanding, this expectation of the Messiah. And He's even going to correct some theology uh, for the disciples. And then there's some things that we can glean today as we look at the mission that Christ has given us. Let's start in the Scripture here, if you would, with me. And uh, let's look at our passage today, if you would, beginning in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Jesus went out with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered to Him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. You know, there's a uh, one of the largest religions in the world today still believes that Jesus was a prophet. There are several religions that believe that Jesus was a prophet. Many in that day thought, you know, Jesus, he's probably one of the prophets. Matter of fact, maybe he's the John the Baptist figure. Maybe he's that guy spoken about in Malachi that would be the forerunner to the Messiah. There were lots of different opinions about who Jesus was. And there were lots of rumors swelling around, but he said to them, who do you say that I am? Now, you know, this is a nice passage. It's a very popular passage, one that most of us are familiar with. We've heard multiple times. But let me give you a little historical background that I think is imperative to understanding this question. It's not just Jesus getting a, uh, a, just kind of getting his ego built up. Who who do you think I am? Who do you think about me? What What are people saying about me? That's not what he's doing here. Let me give you a little background. There are multiple people before the time of Christ, during the time of Christ, and after the time of Christ who have the name Jesus. That word Jesus, that name Jesus means Yeshua. It means Yahweh saves. Okay? Now, if you had grown up during that era, it was the prevalent, predominant, Theology slash philosophy ideology was this, that one day the Messiah would come and he would kick out all the Jews, excuse me, all the Gentiles out of Jerusalem and the greater Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, that he would reign from the throne and he would restore peace and prosperity to the Jewish nation. That's what the Messiah was going to do. And so children would hear from their grandparents and their parents, that's right, right now we've got the evil Roman Empire that is oppressing us. But one day, when the Messiah comes, 
He'll change all that. Everything will be transformed. We will rule over our land as we were meant to be. We will worship. Our economy will be right. Everything will be right. When the Messiah comes. Peter had heard that probably. James, John. They had all heard that message. So there would be parents who would name their children on purpose. Jesus, hoping that he might be the Messiah. Now, they didn't know that the name would be Jesus, but it meant Yahweh saves. And so that name would be given. And we know of several historical figures who had that name Jesus other than Jesus Christ. We know Ananias who prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and went around prophesying Jesus Ananias, Jesus Sapphira. He was a lead insurrectionist and he led a revolution, a rebellion. He gathered rebels and tried to overthrow the Roman Empire. There were multiple figures who tried to do that. And that's the common way that people thought the kingdom of God would be ushered in. There was another that you've probably heard of before, but you didn't know his, quote, first name was Jesus. It was Jesus Barhabas. Jesus Barhabas. Barhabas, bar, anytime you see the word ben or bar, that means son of, okay? So bar, habas, abbas, abba, father, son of the father. Jesus Barhabas, Barabbas. Remember when Jesus was before Pilate? And who is brought up with him? Barhabas, Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And Pilate is literally saying this, which Jesus will you choose? Barabbas or the Christ? Which will you choose? And because for many, Jesus did not meet their objectives. He had not done what they had expected him to do. And Barabbas, his goal, they knew, was to overthrow the Roman Empire. To kick all the Gentiles out of their homeland. Barabbas, release Barabbas. What do I do with him? Crucify him. He's not meeting our objective. He's taking people away from our goal, from our mission So this term is loaded. This passage is loaded. It's not just simple. Who do you think I am? What Jesus is saying here, he said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Messiah. You're not a prophet. You're not who one who's preparing for the Messiah. You are the promised one. You're the one that God has promised. You're the one of which the prophecies speak. You are the Messiah. And Jesus says this in verse 30 that is very perplexing if we don't understand the historical background that we just talked about. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Now, why would he say, all right, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, don't tell anybody about me. Why? Because most people, and we know this from earlier when we we looked at Mark earlier at the feeding of the 5,000, most people were hoping that Jesus would be that rebel leader. Matter of fact, we know not in the Gospel of Mark, but in two of the other Gospels, in in Luke and Matthew, that they were going to take him by force and make him their leader. 
So Jesus said, I don't want you to share this right now. I have a mission, and my mission is not what the people think. It's not even what you think. And then he began to teach them, and he's going to give him, this is my mission. I know what you've been told. I know what you think, but let me give you my real mission. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and after that, rise after three days. And he was talk, openly talking about this, so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter's heard, he knows what the Messiah is supposed to do. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. And he says, um, no, Jesus, this is not going to happen. I'm going to stand beside you. I will not let this happen. The Messiah is not supposed to die. He's not supposed to suffer. He's supposed to come and rule and take authority. He's supposed to come and and to kick people and take names. That's what He's coming to do. But Jesus does something very strongly. Jesus, I mean, Peter rebukes Him very strongly. It's the same word that's used to rebuke demons. And then Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. We see right here. He turns around and basically said, that is not my mission. He said, turning around and looking at the disciples, He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. In case you wonder if he's serious, in case you wonder if this is strong, he says, Satan, he says, because you're not thinking about God's concerns about man. That's Satan's agenda. That's what he wants to happen. But that's not what God has intended. God has a much bigger picture. He has a global and an eternal perspective. And the purpose for which I'm coming is not just for this day and this moment for you to be rescued from your oppression. But I have a much larger picture in mind, a much greater mission that is eternal. So then Jesus says this. He, he inverts their understanding of the mission. You know, we're doing Advent right now, and matter of fact, on your bulletin, you see an upside down Christmas tree because we're talking about the Advent conspiracy, and what we want to encourage you to do is to give more and spend less upon yourself. Okay, and that's inverted of the common understanding of Christmas today. And Jesus, in a sense, this is the original uh, Advent conspiracy. Okay, here it is right here. He's going to completely uh, deconstruct what they thought and give a new mission here. And uh, he's going to identify, look, you follow me. It's going to be a new identity. You're going to have a new agenda, but you're going to have a new hope. And this is what he says. Matter of fact, this statement is found six times in the gospel. More than any other quote Jesus made, he made this quote right here. Six times. So, and this is what it is. And you've heard me share it before. He said, if any man wants to be my follower, then he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. The path that you want to take will simply cost your life and your mission will not be accomplished. But let me give you another path. Let me give you another perspective. I'm going to ask you to take on a new identity. I'm going to ask you to follow me. And it's going to be about serving. It's going to be about dying. It's going to be about suffering. It's not a compelling message at the moment, let me tell you. And for us today, it's not one we like to hear. He said, this is the mission. He said, so 
if you're seeking simply to save your life, to get all that you can and to can it all up, all that you can get, he said you're going to miss it. And what's interesting is Jesus is speaking this to a group of people who certainly at Golgotha, there are crucifixions occur. But we know from other extra-biblical historians that the Romans would frequently take crosses and put insurrectionists like some of the people that we've talked about, and they would crucify them on the road that led into Jerusalem as a vivid reminder of the consequences of coming against Rome. So they were very familiar with the cross. They were very familiar with the penalty that would be paid for those who would lead an insurrection. And Jesus said, you know how some of those guys have risked and given their life for the mission of overthrowing the Roman Empire? I'm going to ask you to have the same zeal and passion, the same commitment to me. And we have a completely different mission. It's the gospel. He says it right here in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, 36 here. And the gospel. What is the gospel? I want us to always be reminded of the gospel that we are more sinful and we're worse than we think. There's no, Our deeds are of no merit or of no consequence in ascertaining heaven or our, our relationship with God. We are just more sinful and worse than we ever thought or imagined. And there's nothing we can do about it. That's the bad news. Okay. The good news is we are more loved and forgiven and accepted because of what Christ did upon the cross when we receive His grace and forgiveness and transfer our trust from us trying to do better, trying to be good enough to what Christ has done on the cross, that He paid the price, that the Bible said there would be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, so He shed His blood for us, that if we would believe that, receive that, and transfer our trust to what Christ and Christ alone can do, then we would be granted salvation. That's the message and the hope of the gospel. And so, the Bible tells us, uh, for what does it profit a man or benefit a man to gain the whole world and lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? For what benefit will it be if you go on your own agenda, your own mission? What can a man give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory of the Father of heaven with angels. You may go that direction. You may think that's really patriotic. That's really a big deal. But you know what? You will have missed the whole point. You will have missed the point of the Messiah. You will have missed the Messiah himself. So I want you to understand this is going to be your identity. That you're going to serve, you're going to give, you're going to suffer for the cause of Christ and for the gospel. Number two, your agenda will be to see men and women and boys and girls experience the grace and forgiveness given through Jesus Christ. And thirdly, your hope, chapter 9, verse 1, he said, And I assure you this, that some are standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God coming in power. I'm going to give you this hope that some of you are you're going to experience the power of of the gospel, the power of the risen and resurrected Lord, you're going to experience the death, the burial, but the resurrection of Christ. Some of you are going to experience the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, 40 days from my death. And you're going to see 3,000 in one time come to Christ. You're going to experience the hope of the kingdom manifesting itself in power. 
And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. And He was transformed in front of them. Now, this is what, you know, we, this is where we're coming to. This is the purpose of the sermon. Jesus has asked that question, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Jesus is going to make it abundantly clear that He is the divine, that He is the divine Son of God. He's not just a Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And He's going to show that, uh, and He's going to reveal Himself with Moses and Elijah, two people that they thought were dead. Now, common Jewish theology in that time was that there would be a general resurrection one day and that the Spirit would hover over the body for about three days and then it went into, we could call it a soul sleep, or they weren't really sure where it went, but it wouldn't be awakened. It wouldn't be present with God until the general election, the general um, resurrection, so to speak, the general uh, resurrection. And so until that time, uh, they didn't really have a good theology for where the Spirit would be, but it was certainly believed after three days uh, it lay dormant, so to speak. We'll just use that term. And in this particular instance, uh, we know later on that um, Jesus is saying, hey, after three days, I'm going to come back. We know with Lazarus, he waits specifically on purpose after three days to dispel that incorrect theology. And so he communicates that. But now they've got a problem theologically because here is Moses and Elijah showing up. They're supposed to be dead, and it's been a lot longer than three days. And so what occurs here, it says, His clothes became dazzling and extremely white, and no launder on this earth could have whitened them as they appeared. Uh, if you go back to Exodus chapter 32 and 33, when Moses was in the presence of God, we know that his garments whitened, that he glowed and radiated when he came down to the people. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So why? Moses and Elijah. Well, first of all, Moses is the original lawgiver. Okay? So he is the giver of the law. How do they understand their relationship with God right now? Through the law and the prophets. The great prophet was Elijah. The great lawgiver was Moses. So under their covenant, the way that we have relationship with God, the way that we know Him is through the law and the prophets. The law was given. The Torah was given. And then the prophets were God's primary instrument. That's how he spoke. There weren't Bibles all running around like we have now. There might have been a few copies of the Torah in your community if you were lucky, but most of it was given. Uh, you, you memorized the Torah, uh, if possible, when you were a child. And then the prophets spoke. That is how God has been communicating. And now there is a new covenant about to be inaugurated. It's going to be the covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. So there's been the law of the prophets. Jesus talks about the law and the prophets frequently through Scripture. And now it's Christ. It's covenant of grace. So the law and the prophets are about to be replaced by Jesus, by the covenant of grace. Now, this would have been shocking for them to see. And I've done that on purpose. And... uh they uh they are having what they what we would encounter you know kind of like a, a near death experience or a god a near god experience is probably a better way to describe it and they're com obviously probably completely fascinated just like our culture is today now our culture largely predominantly is of the philosophy of materialism now 
when I say a materialistic philosophy, that's not, I'm not saying that. What that means is our, our culture, they just like to get a lot of stuff and buy it and have it. That's true. Uh, but that's not what I'm talking about, okay? Uh, materialistic philosophy is this, is that if it is not observable or provable by the five senses, then it is not accurate. It is probably not real, and it's certainly uh, not provable. It's simply just a thought or a theory at best. But... Uh, if it's if you can prove it by the five senses, then that validates it. So that's a materialistic uh, philosophy. That's by far uh, the largest part of our academic community, and really by uh, a, a large percentage of Americans today. Okay, so that was the view of miracles. That was also pretty much probably uh, somewhat the view at that time. Certainly didn't think you know people could come back from the dead. I mean, the truth of it is, for you to come to salvation, you've got to believe that Jesus came back from the dead. But really, the rest of the miracles, they're not that big of a deal if you can believe that one. Okay? If you can believe a man died and came back uh, three days later, hey, do you really want to argue over whether he could feed 5,000 people? Uh, do you really want to argue over um, whether Jesus was able to heal the, the blind and the deaf if he, if he came back from the dead? I mean, that's the big one. Okay? In our culture, even though it's materialistic, we have a huge fascination with the dead and with coming back to life. Matter of fact, if you will, Kent, put it on the screen. Do you realize there have been over, over the last 12 to 13 years, there have been over 300 books written on near-death experience. And mo- most of these are not Christian books. But it just shows that our culture is fascinating. Many of them find themselves on the Times bestseller list. Now, I want to show you a few that you're probably familiar with. And... These are on the uh, New York... This one was number one on the New York Times bestseller. Heaven is for real. It's about Colton when he's three years, almost four years old, dies and goes uh, to heaven and has this experience where he sees family members and he gives them vivid detail. And one of them is uh, a sister that uh, had been miscarried that his family had never told him about. There's a lot of fascinating things that he sees and he comes back and, and vividly describes and so uh, that's a book, of course, that's popular and uh, many of you have read and have seen. Uh, another one by Don Piper, who was a pastor who, who died and comes back and tells about his experience and how he encountered God afterwards. And um, a pastor, and it's, you know, he's, he speaks all over America now. Now, these two right here, the academic community, a lot of you would probably say, that's real good. You got to count of a four-year-old child. Uh, good for you. You know, and then you've got a preacher. What'd you expect him to say? Um, but, and again, there's multiple books. Let me give you another one. Um, proof of Heaven. Matter of fact, let me just go to this one first one. You're not supposed to do that. Proof of Heaven. This guy, and he's not a Christian, but he is a neurosurgeon at Harvard Medical School. He's at the top of the academic world. I am not endorsing his theology. Just want to tell you that right now. He was a materialist by his own admission. Uh, there may or may not be some kind of God. If it can't be provable by the five senses, then I don't buy it. And that was his philosophy. Um, has been uh, teaching at Harvard Medical School, has his Ph.D. and his M.D., uh, very well known and respected in the academic community. Uh, did not believe in near-death experiences as a neurosurgeon. <clears throat> he explained it by saying, well, they had hallucinations as they were coming out. You know, in the cerebral cortex, there's still brain activity, trying to understand what's about to happen, what you want to happen. He said, I could see those signals and the synapses 
in the in the brain, and so that's what's happening. And that always been his explanation. He dealt he dealt because he was a neurosurgeon. He dealt with hundred people, hundreds of people like that. But then he goes, I, I died. And what they found when they looked at my brain was there was no activity in the cerebral cortex. It was completely dark. Nothing's happening there. And he goes into this coma and he's in it for seven days. And when he comes out, he has this vivid vision and experience of encountering the afterlife, of which he did not believe in, by the way. He came back saying, I know for a fact there's a God and there's a personal God. Now, he's not a Christian. I'm saying that. He does not take that moniker. Uh, But what he does say is, I was wrong. And it's so interesting. uh, um, There are a lot of people in in the academic community who've said, well, we're we're embracing that. But many have said, we're refuting that. can't believe he did it. And I was reading a couple of atheist websites uh, yesterday, and it was funny. Um, Both of them were just spitting mad. Uh, Two of these primary atheist leaders were just so mad and angry uh, about this book. And uh, basically they're saying, he, they're chalking it up to he's just trying to make a name for himself, make money. I'm thinking, gee whiz, he's a neurosurgeon. How much money does he need? But anyway, um, and he's doing this at the, you know, at the cost of a lot of relationships. He said, I, I know a lot of people aren't going to believe it. He said, I, I would have been one of them. But he said, what I experienced was very real. And, uh, and so, again, this is at the top of the academic field. Another doctor, MD, orthopedic surgeon. Mary Neal, her book came out, and she is a a believer and completely transformed her her life. She talks about her experience in the afterlife. And and by the way, uh, Evan Alexander on this book right here said, you know what, there's no way I can justify my old theory that uh, in the brave waves uh, and the cerebral cortex, these thoughts and these opinions and these ideas that I already had and formerly were in my mind were coming because my cerebral cortex was dark. There was nothing there. There was no brain activity. He said, so it could not have been my brain producing its own images. So, interesting. Uh, she is orthopedic surgeon at USC and UCLA, and uh, another academician, um, probably not as highly regarded, of course, as uh, Alexander, but um, certainly one of uh, immense um, notoriety and, and of academia, and uh, has that experience, certainly believes it was Christ. And uh, it's very interesting. Those are very interesting reads. Again, these are all on the number one on the New York Times bestsellers. They've had their time, and certainly uh, Alexander's book will be there at some point. Why do I say all that? To say today we deal with the same mindset. Is it really real? We're fascinated. We hope it's real. But, hey, it doesn't match up with our five senses. It doesn't match up with our materialistic culture and understanding of how things work. And Jesus basically deconstructs that mentality and he shows them Elijah and Moses. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he didn't know what to do because he said, I'm terrified. I don't know what to do here. And so a cloud appeared and overshadowing them and a voice came from the cloud. You know, it's not often that you get a voice from God, even in the Bible. It's not often that God just audibly speaks. Here's one of those times, God says, the Father says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Then suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with Him except Jesus alone. Now that's loaded theologically right there. First of all, the Father says, listen to Him. Who have they been listening to at this point? The prophets and the law. Now they're gone. Now it's Jesus. Listen to Him. 
And as they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept this word to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. They're, they're, they're still confused. I mean, in one fell swoop, uh, their mission and their theology has been totally inverted, and they're trying to figure this out. Because Jesus is now given a new mission, a new understanding, and a new theological understanding, and a new vision for what the coming life will be like. So for us today, what do we glean? How do, how do we handle that? Uh, that's good that Jesus made sure that the disciples understood who he was, and it's a great lesson for us, but how do we implement that today? Well, let's just talk practically about how we handle it. First of all, we, you know, if we're not believers, we, we come to Christ. We recognize the truth, and we recognize that, and we receive that. But once we are call ourselves Christ followers, what does that mean for us today? Well, a couple of things. Uh, and I want to show you some examples of what it looks like to receive the mission, to understand the theology, and to implement that in our life, to follow Christ. Uh, I want to show some examples of some people. This is Laura Shadle, and Laura is probably kind of the primary volunteer who puts in hundreds and hundreds of hours for our Feed the Hunger program. Uh, she works long and hard. Most of you probably don't know who she is, uh, but she coordinates most of there. A lot of you that put a lot of time and effort and thank you for it, uh, but I think most people would say administratively, this is the lady that's making happen. And what happened with her can happen with us. She heard a call, uh, she started the journey, and then she opened her eyes to the opportunity, and then she embraced it. And she's allowing God to use her. And as you saw in the video, and if we have time, we're going to show it again at the end of this service, um, uh, Feed the Hunger, we had over 227,000 meals packed. And uh, this is all coming from a lady that most of you didn't know, doesn't have any theological training, but who embraced the call. Somebody who's done it with her is Kurt Andrews. You probably heard Kurt stand up here before and speak. Uh, Kurt has made this uh, a mission for him. Feel like God has called him. He's uh, even got his company to buy in. He's gotten other businesses. He's he's uh, probably the primary spokesman we have for Feed the Hunger. And God has taken a guy who came here not even uh, knowing what his relationship with Christ was, uh, completely transform him. And Kurt's going back to Haiti again and, and sees that as the mission that God has given him with the, the orphanages and the children that we're su supporting in Haiti and making sure on this end that food is being packed and being uh, provided for children who are hungry and who have need. And God has used Kurt to be a spokesman. He's embraced that. He started that journey not even knowing exactly what that meant and how that would end, but has embraced it, and God has used him mightily, he and his wife and his whole family, to make an impact in our church as he's done through many of you. Let me give you another example. Uh, Paul and Melinda Marshall. Paul plays the piano. Most of you wouldn't know who Paul is, wouldn't know who Melinda is. They both went through a divorce, and after they were married, they had a burden when they came to our church to say, you know what? Um, we want to do something for couples who are going through divorce, and we want to do divorce recovery, and we want to minister to the children. And so uh, they've ministered to nearly a 100 people who've gone through divorce and through the families, and they are ministering and continually doing groups, and uh, just a great ministry they've started uh, without much recognition or, or much help, to be frank with you. But God has put it upon their hearts, and so we've blessed them, and they've done a wonderful job. Uh, another individual, Melissa Meesey. Uh, Melissa is not somebody you, you, you might not know unless you have children in the children's ministry and you're back, you're involved in missions because I think Melissa would tell you, you know, one of the last things she would ever want to do is stand up here in front of everybody and talk. Uh, she's not an upfront person, doesn't desire to be an upfront person. Uh, but what she does have is a heart for missions 
And she wanted to see, as a matter of fact, our former children's ministry, Stephanie, they went to a conference and uh, she had a burden for how um, how could we get our children involved in missions. And so they've started an organization now. I think it's called, what is it called? Mission Operation Impact Kids. We, we changed the name. I get confused very easily. Operation Impact Kids. And nearly 100 children are involved in missions every month. She's uh, enabled us to partner with Cornerstone, uh, which we're going to be doing some things for, for Christmas this year, if you want to be a part of that. And uh, God has used her. Uh, and again, uh, Melissa was not seminary trained. Uh, she's, she's not a big time spokesman. Uh, but God put this burden on her heart. And now God has implemented that vision through her and through others who help her. Tracy Johnson had a burden that our children memorize and learn Scripture and learn the books of the Bible. And uh, had that vision, that uh, that leading, and has started what we now call Bible Drill here, where we have about 70 children every week come and memorize Scripture and learn Scripture. Uh, it's wonderful because none of these people uh, outside of maybe Kurt are big upfront people. They are in the background kind of folks, and God has used them. So what's the common denominator? Well, I'll give it to you. Number one, they heard the call. Number two, they decided to start their journey. Can I tell you, in every one of these, they didn't know what the end looked like. They didn't have it all mapped out. We certainly didn't have it mapped out for them. In a lot of cases, we didn't have money. We didn't have, we didn't have uh, whatever materials. They just started the journey, and as they were faithful, God continued to open open more and more doors. I mean, I I wouldn't have thought. Matter of fact, I know Crown and Kurt, if you even know this, but I was talking to the guys at Feed the Hunger. Do you realize that our church is doing more meals through that organization than anybody else in the United States right now? Matter of fact, with our next event, we will probably go over a million meals uh, total, and it's amazing. And you know where I, I you know where I'd give most of the credit uh, how God. Certainly it was a God thing, but I would go to Laura and Kurt and their team. That's how it's happened. It, it certainly isn't because of me or anybody on our staff, quite frankly. Maybe give Charlie a time. Don't give him much credit at all, actually. Um, but that's being faithful to the journey, seeing the opportunity. It's here before me, and I'm going to be, and God, whatever that means, I'll do it. I'll say yes. And then seeing what God does. <clears throat> now let me do a disclaimer for you. That doesn't mean that every idea you have that we're going to do. Does it fit in the mission of our church? What is God? But what is God calling you to do? It may be outside of our church. And that, that might even be better. Uh, let me just take a moment here and just say something. I hope you're not offended by it. Here's what we don't need. I don't need you to do this. I don't need you to have a vision or a mission for me to do. Okay? I got one. All right? So this is not an opportunity for you to come up. You know what you need to do, Pastor? Y'all need to do this. You know what I'm going to tell you, first of all? First of all, what are you doing? Are you going, I don't have time. Well, then that ain't God. Okay? God ain't calling me. God's convicting you and you can't handle it. Okay? So go go to your closet and pray a little bit. And get off your duff and quit telling me what to do. All right? All right. So I got that all out of my system. Thank you so much for coming. If you're a visitor, you probably won't come back now. Uh, but here's the principal deal. What is God calling you to do? Quit worrying about what God's calling other people to do. You probably ain't doing nothing if you're worried about what everybody else is doing. God's, God will show you the opportunity, and usually it won't be something brand new. Sometimes it will be. Often it's something right next to you. It may be in our children or preachers. I just told you about five different ministries right here. God may be calling you to be one of those servants where I probably won't be calling your name, but where it doesn't happen as effectively and impact in the impact that it could be because you're not following the call. Okay? So that's what it looks like. And you know what? 
we may not have all the details lined out. You may not be able to see where it ends or how we're going to get there. But that's the beauty of God. When it's a God call, you'll get in it. And even though you won't get a lot of affirmation, even though you won't get a lot of encouragement, you'll know it's Him because it's God and because He's leading. If you've got to have something that shows you a lot and affirms you a lot, it might be your own self-ambition, which is all well and good, but just don't confuse it with the primary purpose for which God has called us as a group of believers. So what is God calling you to do today? Where is He calling you to be involved and to make impact? He clearly showed Peter, hey, this is who I am. And this is my mission. This is my vision. And for us today, we know that our mission that God has given us a church, it comes from the Great Commission to make more and better followers of Christ. To receive people, to equip them, to impact their lives and to send people out to make an impact, to make a difference. What about you? Will you respond this day? Let's pray. We're going to pray to receive communion. If you would prepare your heart uh, as we prepare to receive Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, if there's one that doesn't know you, I pray that today they would come to know you as Lord and Savior, that they would confess you, they would recognize their sinfulness and their need, and they would recognize that you are the great God of the universe who sent his Son to die for us, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the salvation. We believe and we receive and we accept and we transfer our trust to Him, all of us who call You Lord. And Lord, now our mission is to make more and better followers of Christ. And so God, I pray that as You instill upon our heart the opportunities, we see the need around us, Lord, that we will embrace it. And we'll quit wondering when it, where it is and where, when will it come and see it before us, beside us, behind us, next to us. Whether that be a child, a teenager, or an adult whether that be next door at the office or a mission or a class. Lord, I pray that we would take that step and quit waiting for everything to look perfect. For that's the call of the Lord. Just like the disciples had many things they didn't understand and they said, we believe you're the Christ. We're going to follow you. We're not right theologically. We're not right missionally, but we're going to follow you. So Lord, as you go, we'll follow. Let that be true of Rock Point Church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.